from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Connie Schultz published her first book, Life Happens and Other Unavoidable Truths, a collection of her columns for the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper in 2006. She followed this in 2007 with a book about accompanying her husband, Sherrod Brown, on his Senate campaign. The book, and his lovely wife, a memoir from the woman beside the man. Now she's released her first book of fiction, The Daughters of Erie Town, which Kirkus Reviews terms a masterful debut novel. Connie Schultz is appearing in a series of digital events with Ohio booksellers and libraries to promote the book, including one on Tuesday, January 16th, with Gramercy Books in Bexley. More information is available at crafttheshow.com. Welcome to Craft, Connie Schultz. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, Doug. Well, tell me about this switch from reporting to fiction writing uh, with your your new book, which is your first book of fiction. How did that work for you? How did that transition play out as you were doing it? Well, it took me almost a decade to finish this, so I guess that explains the pivot pretty well. It took Mm -hmm. a while. I mean, I've been a journalist for almost, well, at least 35 years now. And one of the things that was... um, more challenging in the beginning was just believing that I could do this. That, you know, I, I often used to tell myself very early in my journalism career, long before anyone else was calling me a journalist or a writer, it, it sounds so hokey, but I really used to do this. I would look in the mirror in my early 20s and say, you are a writer. You are a journalist. You know, I, I've always thought it's so much a head game at first. And I found that fiction writing was similar to that. I was fortunate to have an editor at Random House, Kay Medina, who kept insisting I could do this, had encouraged me in the beginning to do it. It was her idea in the beginning for me to do this. And she had pitched it essentially as saying that the working class are really underrepresented in modern literature. Um, And I absolutely agree with that. And having come from the working class and loving fiction, um, I couldn't help but notice all through my childhood and through my adulthood that I didn't see many people whose lives were, you know, lives that I knew from my community being reflected in fiction. So that gave me the motivation. But at some point, you understand the biggest difference is when you don't know where you're going next, you can't call and get more quotes. <laughs> and there's only so much research you can do. At some point, these characters in your mind have to become the characters on your screen, and they have to be believable. And that was probably the biggest leap for me. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned research, uh, and the book spans several decades. What kind of research yeah. did you did you do? Did, was this uh, a, a moment to look back on, you know, your earlier years or talk to people that uh, uh, would have been growing up in that, in that time period? Well, certainly there, is, um, there are moments that, that stem from my own memories of having been born in the late 50s, growing up in the 60s and 70s. But what, I, what struck me is how much I didn't remember about specifics in history. I know that the generalities of it, but I needed to know exact dates of so many different things, including when did this song become a hit from Motown, for example. When was um, this recipe particularly popular with spam? Those kind of things. And, um, because it's, and fortunately, some things really came more naturally. I mean, Annie Glenn, who, as you know, just died recently. She was one of my dearest friends. Um, while I was working on this novel, and my editor had said, why don't you put a few more subtle historical references, if you can, just to give people a, time, a sense of time and place. A friend in Montana sent me a copy of Life magazine from 1962 that had John on the cover, John Glenn, but inside it was page after page about Annie Glenn and her wait for him to return to Earth. And I actually was able to use that story 
with one of my main characters talking about it in 1962, about how nobody talked enough about how brave Annie Glenn was, too, and how she was a hero. So occasionally I have a nod that is perhaps not so subtle to somebody I love or respect or somebody I care about. And that was so rewarding, too. But there are other things like a train case that becomes, as it became increasingly clear to me that it was a a more important thing in my book than I initially thought, I had to find the train case. I had to find a train case from the 50s. I had to know what it felt like in my hands. I had to smell it. I had to see it, the inside. And so I found one on Etsy (laughs) from the 1950s, and it it ended up becoming so important. So you, you find it in different ways, but I also have a stack that's almost a foot high, I think. You know those old green card things that say on the year you were born? It's right. like a little pamphlet. Yep. I found one for every year from, I think it was 1950 through 1996. And you find them everywhere because they're not popularly sold anymore, but you can find them on Etsy, you can find them on eBay. I had a friend who had three. I mean, you just, and I did that too because it had all these notable moments in a particular year, and then I could pick and choose what I wanted to use. Mm-hmm. Did that give you some things to talk to your family about in uh, in picking up and say, well, the year you were born, this happened, and maybe that explains your haircut or uh, you know <laughs> something that your children well, or your husband might do? I, for me, the people I most longed to talk to about that time were my parents, and they both died in their 60s. In fact, my book is coming out next week, and I'm going to be, well, on Tuesday, June 9th, and uh, I'm 62, which is the age my mother was when she died. Hmm. And I've been so mindful of how fortunate I've been. My mom was a nurse's aide, and my dad was a utility worker. So it's not coincidental that those are two of the main professions in the book with, for two of the main characters, because I grew up knowing most about those professions. And certainly, I wish I could have asked my dad more questions about the plant. But fortunately, I got to meet his former supervisor for a piece I did for Parade Magazine a number of years ago, and I kept all those notes. I also got a manual from the union from the 1960s that explained the job, how electricity is made. I mean, it just had all this different stuff I could use for a scene in which Brick McGinty, the um, main male character, is describing in simple terms to his children how electricity is made. And sometimes things from my past do sneak in. Like, I really did think when I was a child that my dad made electricity by with lightning bolts and just sent it to the light switch in her dining room. And that's such a child's view of it. And I did remember that. So that is included in it. But of course, that's not how electricity is made. So there are moments that are helpful from my past. I talk to my siblings some, but I'm the oldest. So my memories are different from my siblings. Uh, mm-hmm. I talked to some of my friends who are around my age, was, which was also helpful, though. Last fall, I spoke to your husband, Sherrod Brown, on the publication of his book, Desk 88. Eight progressive yeah. senators who changed America. So, what's the writing situation like in your house? <laughs> uh, uh, what, you know, do you have separate offices? Do you meet at the kitchen table and say we're going to stick here and write for two hours? What What's that uh, with two writers in the house? Yes, and yes, um, we do have our own offices. I work more in my office than Sherrod does. He's been doing more lately because of remote committee meetings with the Senate. But much of the time, we would both sit at our, we have a large oak table made by uh, Amish carpenters in Southern Ohio, and it's, it's the main table in our home, and we would sit opposite each other and work a lot. I certainly read and um, offered my thoughts to share its book, but he definitely wrote it himself, and I, I, I love his book. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to hear that, but actually I do, and he tells a story about how he thought he had a first draft, and I told him several years ago that it wasn't even close to his first draft. <laughs> 
Um, he likes that story a little too much, and I wish he quit telling it. Um, but my novel, he has read four times. He's read it in various versions, and he read it when it came out in the advanced reader copy, and he just took a hardbound copy because he said he wants to read it one more time. And if you had told me in my 20s that I would ever be married to a man who cared this much about my writing career, I would have said you had your own bad idea for a novel. <laughs> it's just been an amazing relationship for us, and we are very supportive of each other's work. So what kind of critiques do you give each other? I mean, you already confessed to telling him he wasn't even close, but what kind of feedback did you get from Sherrod? Well, let me say first, when I said that to Sherrod, what I knew was missing were the personal essays of his life as a senator. That's what was missing, right? For me, Sherrod is particularly helpful uh, at chronology, for example. He would very quickly spot when things were out of whack. He would sometimes have a question about a character. What was one of the most rewarding things for me, Sherrod was the first person who started, besides in my own little head, this, the place where all these things are happening, he was the first person in my life who started talking about the characters as if they were real people. And I can't overstate what that feels like when you are standing. I remember where I was. I was in the kitchen. And I think I was making a salad and he started talking and he started talking about one of the characters, like the person was really said, you know, I'm just so disappointed in him that he did that. <laughs> and I got a little teary eyed and he said, well, I'm not that disappointed. I said, no, it's just <laughs> to hear you talk about him as if he's real means that maybe I'm getting through to you because, you know, if Sherrod can buy into it, Sherrod who lives in this world of policy and laws and campaigning, if he could get into it, and buy into that. I thought maybe I was onto something. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a g- great feedback. I don't think anyone has ever said that to me. So uh, <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> it's never too late. Maybe I'll some you know my my very minor fiction will have an impact on somebody. I think maybe on the dogs. That would be my <laughs> best guess. Well, Connie Schultz, Listen, thank you. I don't know if your listeners know you have a PhD in English. So nice try, Buster. You've yeah, got a lot yeah. to say. Yeah, <laughs> we could do a whole show about the value of doctorates in the humanities, but we won't. So, <laughs> again, Connie Schultz, thank you very much for talking to me today. We're looking forward to your virtual visit with Gramercy Books in Bexley on Tuesday, June 16th. More information about that is available at graphshow.com, which will contain links to uh, getting uh, getting hooked up with all of that Um cool virtual stuff and uh, people can also buy on June 9th the Daughters of Erie Town on the day it comes out so thank you very much Connie Schultz Doug thank you so much and thanks for such a thoughtful interview I appreciate it for more information from my guests visit www.crafttheshow.com this is Doug Dangler until next time be creative be creative